So, incredibly, this is our hundredth podcast episode, which is absolutely mind blowing for me. I don't know about you, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, never thought we'd get this far. Yeah, and you know, the only reason that we did get this far is because our loyal listeners, like yourselves, have told your colleagues about it, found it useful. So many of you have sent in questions or suggestions and that guides everything that we do so we just wanted to say a massive thank you to everybody who listens to this who's told their friends about us and who's written in to us to say that it's helped you or to send us a question well first thing to say is we've gone back to our roots so if you weren't here for the very first couple of episodes we recorded in my garage because at the time we only had one microphone the acoustics was better so we recorded in the garage we are back in the garage and it's full of wetsuits and sweaty wetsuits it's as bad as i remember yeah it's still as cold as ever and it's a particularly cold day out there very windy it's midsummer and it must be like eight degrees in my garage i've no idea why yeah yeah it's pretty cold so we're back in the garage back to our roots because the podcast really did start in my garage for those reasons we couldn't afford decent mics and that was the best place to get sound i got some bad news for you what's that the garage is going to be bulldozed really okay i feel like i need like audio descriptions at this point because i would say like ed looks forlorn (laughs) <laughs> glances across the table at Tommy angrily and says, why? Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of a little bit sad because that's where we, we, we started, but it does mean I'm maybe a bit warmer next time we, uh, we do some podcasts. We're, we're upgrading. So yeah, this could be our last time in the garage and I'm not going to miss it. But we were thinking the best way to say thank you to all of you who have supported us. We are going to try and answer the most amount of questions I think we've ever done. So we are covering everything from can Ed be my accountant? My investments have tanked recently. What should I do? Can I claim back an iPad? What else are you talking about, mate? Mileage allowances and some more basically about expenses, whether they can or can't be deductible. Great. And a couple of pension questions as well. Hopefully we're going to get through all of them. But just to say thank you so much for the support. We really couldn't do this without you. It would just be me and Ed talking to ourselves and a few of our colleagues. And that is exactly how Medics Money started. But now we've just passed 280,000 downloads, which is kind of crazy. So I think we should just get into it, mate. Let's go for it. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So, God, it's so cold in here, this garage. I'm not going to be sad to see it go. So first question that I was going to cover is my investments have tanked recently. What should I do? First thing to say is, yep, you know, with the turmoil in the world at the moment, the investment markets have taken a downturn. And this is unfortunately completely normal and natural. I like to think about stock market volatility as the price you pay for the inflation beating returns. And what I'm saying is that, you know, volatility is normal and how you behave when the market is falling, like it is now, is going to be a major determinant of your long-term success with investing. So do you panic and sell when the market falls or like basically buying high and selling low? Never good. Or, you know, do you read the doom and gloom in the financial papers and that's saying everything's really awful 
Or do you ignore the noise and stick to your strategy? And can you hold your nerve? And, you know, whoever have sent this question in, they're saying their investments have tanked. My investments have also tanked. Oh, yeah, mine are really, really tanked. Mine are really down. (laughs) Absolutely. So it's really, really hard when you've worked incredibly hard to earn that money to see it going down like that. But like I said, your behavior as an investor when the market is going down is going to be a major determinant of your returns because if you can hold your nerve and stick to your strategy it's gonna really pay dividends but you know here's a few other things i try to think about when the market is going down so the first thing to say is hold a diversified portfolio and by this i mean well diversified portfolio consisting mostly of stocks and maybe some bonds and you hold lots of different companies based in a wide geographical distribution so some in Europe some in Asia some in the US and you can also hold thousands of stocks so if the US goes down but Australia goes up then you haven't got all your eggs in one US shaped basket and if you're thinking hold on how do I hold thousands of different companies all over the world well thanks to Jack Bogle who is the inventor of index funds and went on to found Vanguard it's super easy to hold thousands of stocks a well diversified portfolio in fact you could even just hold one fund that would cover thousands of stocks across a wide geographical area. And so these so-called funds package hundreds of shares into one package. And if you've got your eggs spread in more than one basket, then that can help protect you against these downturns. It's not going to completely remove the volatility, but it can help to do that. So hopefully your portfolio is diversified as I've just discussed and it's not just 10 shares in biotech companies that your mate who works for those companies told you were a good buy because that is not really a diversified portfolio and a portfolio consisting of 100% crypto assets unfortunately is not also diversified. So diversification is a way to reduce volatility and reduce your exposure to one area of the market going down. And hopefully by holding a wide range of investments, you will be okay. And in fact, the long-term statistics indicate that you will. So talking about long-term, the other thing to reduce your risk is that investing is a long-term play. So time is another proven way to reduce your risk. In general, the longer you invest for, the lower the risk. And you might hear some financial advisors saying, ah, well, how long do you want to invest for? And you say one year or two years. They say, hmm, five years would be better. But why do they say five years? Well, The most likely reason is because of this graph, which I'll put a link to the show notes in, but this graph shows the impact of volatility on different investment terms by considering the performance of what's called the MSCI World Index, which is a basket of more than 1,600 large and mid-sized companies across 23 developed countries, and this is since 1970. And what it shows is the highest and lowest returns for different investment periods. So if you invested for one year in that index across that time frame, the highest return was 56% gain, right? That's good. But the lowest return was a 30% loss over a one-year period. If you invest for a three-year period, the highest return was 34%, but the lowest loss was 16%. So that's already improved from one year to three year. If you invested for five years instead, the highest return was 31% and the worst loss was 5%. So again, it's getting better the longer you invest for. And if you invested for a 10-year period, the highest annualized return was 24% and the lowest annualized return was minus 0.2%. So 
The longer you invest for, the more likely you are to reduce volatility and do better. And we always have to say that past performance does not reflect future performance and none of this is investment advice. But this is based on statistical data over a long time frame and I'll put the link to it in there. Third thing is when the stock market goes down, it can be tempting to think, right, I'm going to sell, you know, and I'm just going to retreat to cash. And you would think that that sounds like a sensible idea. But the trouble is nobody can predict the future. And if you retreat from the investments and move to cash, you are going to miss out on growth as and when the markets recover. And remember, no one knows when they're going to recover. It could go lower. I think probably quite likely to go lower. Not advice, but that's what I'm planning for. So basically, timing your entry and exit from the market is almost impossible unless you can predict the future. And if you can predict the future, reliably, you just let me know. So I just want to talk about another study here, which Fidelity did. And they looked at how $10,000 would have grown if you invested it in the S&P 500, which is just an index in America. So like we said, an index, you can buy a fund to cover all of that. And they looked at a period from 1980 to 2018. So you put in $10,000 in 1980. If you left that $10,000 invested throughout that entire period, you didn't take it out when things got bad and try and sell when things were bad like they are now, then that $10,000 would have been worth £659,591 in 2018. So that's just doing nothing. So doing nothing, 659591. So let's just say you sold in and out of the market. You tried to time the market, okay? But what happened actually is that in doing that, because you couldn't predict the future, you missed the best five days in the market during that period. Then, instead of being worth $659,591, your investment will be worth just $427,041. So a significant reduction because no one can predict the future, no one can time the market, or very few people can time the market. I can't. Ed? No, sadly not. Wish I could. Yeah, so I wish you could too, then I'll just do what you did. Uh, but I'm just leaving it in. So, okay, so that's missing the best five days. But let's say you're a bit more cautious, okay, and you missed out on the best 30 days between 1980 and 2018. Then your £10,000 investment, which if you'd just done nothing, would have been worth $659,591, would be worth just $125,094. So a significant decrease in missing those days because nobody could time the market so no one can time the market or very few people unless you've got psychic powers or a crystal ball then overwhelmingly the data just says just don't do anything don't panic stick to your long-term plan another reason is and we talk about this all the time but it seems like okay i'm gonna sell all my shares and retreat to cash well unfortunately inflation is nine percent the best interest rate I've seen on cash recently is 1.5%. Okay, so the value of cash is being eroded by inflation. So you might think that cash is a safe haven, but actually once you factor in inflation, that time that you're waiting for the stock market to settle down, you could lose a lot of money thanks to inflation. Uh, the final thing is... If you think about what you've bought, if you've bought a well-diversified stocks and shares portfolio, okay, so let's say you've bought a globally diversified index tracker, you own a share of that, okay, and you still own the same amount of shares today as you did two months ago. It's just that they're worth less, okay, but if you actually sell those shares for less than you bought them for, you are basically crystallizing a paper loss, which is a theoretical loss, into an actual loss, and you know, imagine that the value of your house had fallen in the short term. It's pretty unlikely that you would sell it immediately and crystallize that loss. You would probably hopefully try and sit tight. So my goodness, that turned into a long explanation. But I think it's something that we get a lot at the moment. You know, it's tough when the markets go down. And if you have a financial advisor, 
this is what you pay them for to help you through you know when markets are going up financial advisors have it relatively easy when they're going down this is where they earn their money and actually i've talked about this before but there's something called the vanguard advisor alpha study which is where vanguard tried to quantify the benefit of using an advisor and they worked out that having an advisor added three percent to the returns of people that had advisors and this wasn't by trading stocks and shares it wasn't by timing the market and buying in and out of the market and trying to predict the future but it was basically by controlling and modifying behaviors and stopping you from selling low trying to time the market and panic so it is hard i've been investing since 2009 and in 2009 it was all gloom and doom and nothing was gonna be great and i was buying stocks and it felt ridiculous but retrospectively i was buying stocks in the sale and i like to buy stocks in the sale again another big downturn happened at covid and i didn't change my strategy at all and that all recovered so if you look at the history of the market and over time, any sort of index, let's take the S&P 500, the trend is up and to the right, okay? It's grown over time massively. But if you zoom in, there's lots of peaks and troughs. So if in doubt, just zoom out on the market. Don't look at the day chart. Don't look at the week chart. Just zoom out over time and hopefully everything will be okay. I don't know what your thoughts are about that, mate. Yeah, I mean, my investments have definitely gone down. But just like you said, I'm just going to sit tight. And try to resist the temptation to keep looking every day at my investments because it's just depressing right now. So I'm going to stop looking at them and uh, not panic. Do you know what? That's a really good tip as well. Like there's so many tips here, but just don't look at them. Okay. Like I actually honestly only really look at my investments once a year when I do my annual review. And that's because I'm not going to change anything. And if I look at them right now, uh, I'm just going to get really scared and think, oh my goodness, all that hard money. But if you've got a sensible, well-diversified portfolio and you're in it for the long term and you don't do anything crazy like time the market or any of the other ways that you can lose your money, then you will most likely be okay. And of course, none of this is financial advice. Do your own research, etc. But I think it's interesting to look at those statistical studies over the long term, especially that one about timing the market. You know, if you just put it in in 1980 and took it out in 2018, you'd have 659 thousand five hundred ninety one dollars and if you were out of the market for 30 days that would be one hundred twenty five thousand and ninety four dollars it's sit sit, sit 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 tight set and forget right next question so this is the question from an sd1 radiology trainee in the northeast that says i worked as a locum last year prior to starting training september 2020 to september 2021 as part of that i was required to carry out an appraisal for gmc revalidation my appraisal was carried out via Medsu, a company I guess, M-E-D-S-U, and cost approximately £600. I have attempted to gain tax relief, but HMRC have stated that this is not an allowable job expense. Medsu were unable to advise or clarify on this. I was wondering if you were able to advise. Okay, so the legislation regarding claiming employment expenses against employment income for tax purposes lists out four specific types of expenses which HMRC will automatically accept are allowable. And we've covered these before, but these are subscriptions to approved organisations, such as the GMC, for example, payments to an occupational pension scheme, like the NHS pension, certain travel expenses, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later, and charitable deductions paid directly from salary. For everything else, we have what's called the general rule. And under that general rule, an expense is only allowable if it meets the really strict criteria of that rule, okay? And that rule states that an expense has to be incurred wholly, exclusively and necessarily in the performance of the employee's duties. So you think about appraisal costs like this doctor's incurred. You know, rather unfairly, what HMRC argue is that you're not incurring those costs 
in the performance of your duties. You know, you're not actually doing your job as a doctor whilst you're having that appraisal and you're not incurring the costs whilst you're having that appraisal. So sadly, it's really unlikely that you'll be able to get HMRC to budge on that and allow this expense. Things are different if you are self-employed, if you're in a partnership or if you operate via a limited company because the rules as to when an expense is allowable are much, much less strict than for an employee. The rules there are that an expense is allowable if incurred wholly exclusively for the purposes of the trade, which is a much easier test to meet. The reason why us employees get into such difficulty claiming expenses is because of the word necessarily. Is it necessary to incur that expense or is it making you a better doctor? And also that phrase in the performance of duties. So I've given this example before, but if when I was an F2, I had to go and do my ALS and I did that in Worthing on a weekend and admittedly I didn't pay for it so my, it came out my study budget, but imagine I had paid for it myself, you know, would I be able to get a tax deduction before that? You think almost certainly yes, given that, you know, I had to do that ALS because of my F2 contract and it's obviously vital for us doctors. However, I wasn't doing that in the performance of my duties as a doctor. I was doing it on a cold weekend in Worthing. So I wouldn't be allowed a tax deduction for that if I paid for it myself. Annoying. Yeah, very, very annoying. And on to another question on the same vein is, Hi, Medix Money. My name's Alexander. I'm a junior doctor based in the northwest of England. My question is regarding whether or not I can claim tax back against um, electronic items that I've bought um, for my studies. I recently bought an iPad um, to help me with exams and studying, and I was wondering if I'd be able to get any tax back against something like this. Um, I hope you can help. Thanks. Okay, so sadly, again, this expense doesn't fall into one of those four specific categories that we mentioned previously. And so we have to look at the general rule again. And even if you argue that this doctor used their iPad wholly and exclusively for their work, HMRC would then argue that whether it is necessary to have an iPad or if it is to make them a better doctor. And also, as with the last doctor, the HMRC would also argue that the iPad expense and other things, they were not incurred in the performance of duties. I mean, there are definitely grey areas when it comes to whether an expense is allowable or not. But I think this is one which is definitely in that category of no, sadly, not going to be allowed by HMRC, unfortunately. Yeah, again, frustrating. And they don't always interpret the rules consistently. But this is just based on our understanding of helping thousands of doctors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, sometimes... We get emails from people saying, oh, you said you can't claim this, but I managed to get a tax deduction. Usually, that's there's no basis in law for that tax deduction. It's just that HMRC have kind of not twigged and have let it go through. The legislation is fairly clear on what you can and can't get deduction for. On the whole, as I said, there are some grey areas, but this really isn't a, a grey area, sadly. Yep, so very sad, but hopefully a question with a little bit more good news for, for people. So the question is... Hi, guys. Thanks for taking the time to help with my query. I'm in a five-year training scheme where I'm employed centrally by one trust. However, as a part of the scheme, we have six-month placements elsewhere, some of which are 40 to 50-mile commutes. Are we allowed to claim tax back on the mileage to these hospitals that are not our employing trust, or would these be classed as our permanent place of work, meaning that we cannot claim back the tax? Okay, so we spoke about these four categories of employment expenses that are allowable and one of those categories is certain travel expenses. So if it's necessary for an employee to travel in the performance of their duties of employment or the expenses are attributable to an employee's necessary attendance at any place to perform their duties then the costs will be allowable. However the legislation then denies any deduction for expenses of ordinary commuting. So for example 
When I drive to my GP surgery and back, I can't claim any deduction for the expenses that I incur in driving, such as fuel, because it's my ordinary commute. This question is interesting though, because the doctor seems to have an ordinary place of work at this central hospital, but for six months is placed at a different hospital. And HMRC will allow a tax deduction for cost of travel to a place that constitutes a temporary workplace. And that's a place which the employee attends in the performance of their duties in order to perform a task of limited duration. HMRC defined that limited duration as 24 months, so actually it's quite a long period of time. There are further rules and exceptions. The legislation isn't particularly great, as in most legislation. HMRC have had to issue guidance to their employees, their inspectors, and have told them not to challenge any tax relief where the likely duration of work at this workplace is less than 80% of the likely duration of the employment. So cutting through all this, if you've listened so far, well done. If you understood it, even better. But just cutting through all that, you know, a six-month placement away from the doctor's normal place of work they should be able to claim back tax on mileage or cycle costs, etc. unless that six months is going to be more than 80% of their duration of employment, which does seem unlikely. That was fascinating. The great thing about that is I got a bit distracted and someone literally just emailed us now. They responded to our email that we sent. And if you're not on an email list, get on an email list because that's where a lot of these questions come for. I've got a bonus question at the end, so it's going to be more interesting than that. Although, you know, this is important because there's a lot of money involved there. Okay, next question is for you, mate. I'm springing this one on you because I know that you wouldn't answer it otherwise. But can Ed be my accountant? Well, it's a very kind offer, but sadly, the answer to that is no. You know, first of all, I prefer being a doctor to an accountant. I did leave accountancy for a reason, but I also like to use my skills that I learned as an accountant and that knowledge that I learned to help everyone. So I'm very happy to be part of Medics Money, but I just don't think I'd have the time to actually be a proper accountant again. Exactly. So I think we get this question a surprising amount, but I think there's a few things to sort of say here. So one, Ed definitely prefers being a doctor than an accountant. So that's a good place to start. And you know, when we started Medics Money, we were just helping friends and friends and friends of their friends. It was really small scale. And at that point, Ed did kind of do some direct advice. And that was great, but we were literally helping 400 of our mates and mates of their mates and we always wanted to help as many doctors as possible because it's great to help out your mates but we wanted to help everybody and the way that we do that is by doing things like this podcast like I said over 280,000 downloads now which is amazing and we also write all the content and stuff so in a way Ed is everyone's accountant, which is great. And it allows us to benefit many, many more people by Ed not getting bogged down in having his own clients. So, you know, over 280,000 downloads now. I did a presentation the other day. We had 1.8 million page views and we have 34,000 email subscribers, which is amazing because that just helps everybody out. So we're helping out the most amount of people that we can. But more importantly, if you start a business, you know, you've got to think about what the success looks like to you and success for us was enjoying what we do which is we love doing podcasts ed is less keen on doing accountancy that's fine and also we're helping the most amount of people that we can to help themselves and the final thing to say is that we have an amazing network of the best specialist medical accountants in the business verified by us reviews by you so if you do need an accountant then you can find some of the very very best specialist medical accountants on medics money so unfortunately you're no one's accountant yeah sorry guys but i think the solution that we have hopefully allows us to help as many people as possible absolutely Okay, so shall I read out the next question? The next question comes from a cardiologist whose income comes from the NHS and the private sector via a limited company. 
So I'm assuming that the private sector income comes via a limited company there. They are wondering what to do with the income in that company so that dividends can be deferred until a later date. And so they're wondering, can they invest that money? And the problem that they're finding is they've not found any platform to take company investments. Do you have any advice? Okay, so this doctor, they've got both an employment income and also this income, I guess, as you say, Tommy, the private income coming into a limited company. So looking at that income that's going into that limited company, that's going to be liable to corporation tax at 19%, although potentially higher from the 1st of April 2023 when the corporation tax rates are going up. The issue here really is how to get the money out of the company subsequently if you need the money. And that can be done via taking a salary, taking a dividend or a combination of the two. And we've got a lot of information on this on our website for those who are interested. We get a lot of questions about, should I set up a limited company? And how should I pay myself by the limited company? That comes up quite a lot. So we've got quite a few podcasts on that and blogs and so on. Of course, in this case, what the doctor's saying is, from what I can gather, they don't need to take the money out of the company at this moment in time. And it's perfectly acceptable to leave money in the company, technically ad infinitum, okay? So you don't have to take the money out if you don't need the money. And if you don't need the money, you can afford to leave it rolling up in the company. You know, the company can invest that money instead. We actually have a podcast all about using limited companies to invest, which I think is episode 24 in our podcast schedule with one of our absolutely excellent independent financial advisors, some called Guy Roper of Sunrise. And it's going to be well worth a listen to anyone who is able to leave money in their own company, which I appreciate won't be very many people, but there are definitely doctors out there who are in that nice position. I would definitely recommend to that cardiologist that he has a listen to that podcast and he can get more information there. Yeah. And we also we recorded our limited company podcast. I'm not sure if it's coming out before or after this episode, but it's just updating on the latest information because a few things have changed recently. But I think, you know, we get the question a lot about does a limited company make sense? Or my mates bought a Tesla and saved a load of tax using a limited company. Should I do the same? And the thing is, it's just so dependent on your individual circumstances, because if you need to take the money out of the company, then obviously, as Ed said, you can do that salary or dividend or combination but you pay tax at that point but if you can leave the money in like this doctor has like you don't need the income then there's a whole range of tax planning benefits that you can do to actually save a significant amount of tax but it just depends on your individual circumstances and I think sweeping statement this but a lot of people just think oh limited company is going to save me tax well no you need to consider your personal circumstances and listen to the podcast which is either coming up or going to be out really soon because in that Jenny Stone from RBP they made this beautiful table just comparing the actual tax savings in three different scenarios and that's just really nice so check that out All right, next question looks like it's for me. I'm a relatively new GP partner coming up on six months. I'm due to buy into the practice soon and I've heard that there are specific loans for GP partnership but haven't had much luck in getting any information from my bank about this. Just wondering if you had any advice or suggestions on who to approach. Well, First thing to say is we definitely do have advice on who to approach here. Obviously, me as a GP partner, quite useful in this scenario. So just to explain to anybody who isn't a GP or doesn't know, some GP partners own their own surgeries and then they can effectively rent that surgery back to the government. And this is known as notional rent. And on our new to GP partnership course, the next one starts on June the 22nd, and we have taught over 200 partners on that now. We discuss this kind of thing in detail because nobody teaches us this stuff when we're going through GP training. And that's kind of crazy because GP partners are not just, you know, clinicians, but they're also small business owners. So our course 
is really popular. We love doing it. It's one of the most rewarding things that I think we've done at Medics Money and you can expect more courses for other types of doctors coming as soon as we can. But so basically, yeah, some GP partners own their own surgery and then they effectively rent that back to the government. The government pays them rent, that's notional rent. And that can be, you know, very, very nice. So when this new partner joins this partnership, they need to buy part of that building. Okay, their share. And they usually do this, well, if they got the cash, then they might use the cash. Although there's actually a few reasons not to use the cash because the interest on the loan is tax deductible, as you know, mate. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. So, you know, they need to buy in and they need to loan the money. And this loaning of the money, as this doctor's experience, is a really specialized niche lending. And if you just rock up to your normal high street bank, they're just going to look really confused and not be able to help you. So there's only a few providers that offer it. And so similar to getting a mortgage on your house, all you need to do is check every single deal on the market and you can either do that yourself or you can use an independent broker that knows the market inside out and is expert on this and covers the whole of the market and we work with an excellent broker so check out episode 45 i've put a link in the show notes which explains all of this in detail and also there's a link to a blog article there as well and if you are a new partner in a gp practice definitely check out our gp partnership course and that's just at medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash gp course so check it out and we talk about this kind of stuff and everything else you didn't get taught whilst you were talking about the fascinating mileage tax very very interesting absolutely i just checked our inbox and we sent out an email earlier this week saying if you've got any questions let us know and literally one has just landed i might just throw it in there now you're looking nervous but i think it's for me well more than you so it's from a doctor who is a GP. They are basically thinking they may not work within the NHS lifelong. They might move abroad and work somewhere else. And this is something that we're seeing a lot at the moment. And we've got a podcast on that. I can't remember what episode it is about moving to Australia. A very popular podcast. So basically the question is, if you know you're going to move abroad and stay there, is it worth contributing to the NHS pension? Now, unfortunately, we cannot give you financial advice. But so that, it's not advice, but I just want to outline a few things. First thing to say, which a lot of people don't seem to know, is that the NHS pension can be paid into bank accounts worldwide. So if you worked here for five years and were in the pension and accrued all that pension and then you went abroad for another 25 years, when you retire, you can get that NHS pension paid into a bank account abroad, which is a very, very useful feature, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And then the other thing is just going on about the general benefits of the NHS pension. Despite all the problems we talk about, it's still a great deal for the vast majority of people. If you're not in it, you also lose the benefits that we talked about on the recent podcast. So the death in service, your benefits are reduced, shall we say. So death in service and dependence pensions, spouse pensions, etc. So I can't give you advice, but the NHS pension is still a great deal for the vast majority of us. Me and Ed are all in on the NHS pension. We love it. Well, we don't love how complex it is. We like to have access. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you are planning to move abroad, you can get your pension paid abroad. So hopefully that was useful. A last minute question into the inbox. Nice. So I'm thinking it's freezing. We need to get out of this garage and I desperately need a coffee. Yeah. Can we have to wrap it up? That's okay. I feel a bit emotional because this is probably going to be the last time we are recording in the garage in its current format. And this is where it all started 100 episodes ago. But the temperature and the smell yeah. is not making me nostalgic. Yeah. So, I mean, there is some nostalgia there, but I think it'd be nice to go somewhere warmer. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for your support. 
without all you listening and telling your colleagues about us, leaving us reviews, this literally would just be me and Ed in my garage talking to five or 10 people. We're talking to over 280,000 now, which is amazing. I mean, I just find it so rewarding to help our colleagues in this way. So some really random things happened to me. I phoned up the A&E the other day to get some advice about a patient and the consultant who I spoke to was a Medics Money podcast listener. Oh, nice. And that just felt amazing, really, because they were helping me out and I was massively grateful for that. And they were massively grateful for our podcast. It is so rewarding. And if you've got any questions or any topic suggestions, literally, I think most of our episodes now will come from people saying, oh, could you just answer this question? So just keep them coming. We really appreciate the support. Hopefully those a long list of questions was helpful for you today. Don't forget to subscribe as well because then you get all of them. And we'll see you on the 101st episode next Tuesday. Thanks, guys. Take care, everyone. <laughs>